Welcome to Funeral Directors Chat, where funeral professionals discuss industry topics, trends, and news. And now your host, Nancy Bourbon. Hi, I'm Nancy Bourbon, your host for Funeral Directors Chat, a podcast providing funeral professionals with insight to current industry topics, news, and trends. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Beecher McDougall. And he is a third generation, is that right, Beecham? Fourth. A fourth. Fourth generation funeral director. Beecham has served on the school board. He started a student exchange program. It's in its 19th year, and it's involved over 400 Americans and Scots as participants. Uh, He also serves on the Scotland County Historical Properties Association, on the Scotland County Tourism Development Authority, and he's vice president of the Scotland County Highland Games. I think it's fair game to guess that Beecham is Scottish. Is that correct? I've got a little bit of Scottish blood. Uh, yeah, I think so. a little bit so. of English drink too. So. And Beecham has also done study groups, which we'll discuss in a minute, from 1994, and he started a new one in 2010. Um, welcome, Beecham. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to sharing some ideas and picking up some ideas. Great. Um, Beecham, I always like to start out and ask funeral directors when they decided to go into funeral services and, and what motivated them to do so. Well, I've always told everyone it was the last thing I wanted to do because it was what everyone expected me to do. And I went off to college and majored initially in chemistry to get into pharmacy school. And then one summer when there was no school going on, I couldn't find a job and Pa or my dad said, well, I could use a little part-time help at the funeral home. So uh, I started working at the funeral home and I found out it was not anything like what I had thought it was. And from that point on, I knew that that was what my future was going to be. Wow. And you went to East Carolina University and St. Andrews Presbyterian College, and you majored in history as well. Right. And then you went to Gupton Jones? I went to Gupton Jones between uh, East Carolina and St. Andrews. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was going back to St. Andrews to continue my chemistry major just to complete it. When I found out after taking two years away from chemistry studies, you don't jump right back in, so I changed my major to history. Oh, I see. So I've got that done, and I love history, particularly as it's done on the local, I might say folklore-like level. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I was talking about when I think of history, it is not dates and times and you know troop strength, it's how does it impact other people? And I think that's even carried over into funeral service that you want to know how do events impact people. You're a great author and writer, Beecham. I've read a lot of your um, writings. And you really tell a story, like in your notes on Facebook, I've read most of them. And you really tell a story about the uh, person's life after they've passed and give it, very, give it a lot of dignity and grace. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoy getting to know people, you know, while they're alive. And if I did not know them when they were living and I'm serving the family, I think it, 
I'm doing the family justice to find out as much as I can about the person and about the family so that I know which angle it is best to serve them. And it works out well to really have that kind of understanding and appreciation of people. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of mutual friend speech, and uh, particularly people in the funeral services who are writers, which is really a niche community. And I yeah. and I understand that you started writing stories right after your father's death in 1995, in order That's to, right. you wanted to preserve your own family history and also to speak about others, um, their family history as well. That is correct. Um, my dad loved to sit around with all his friends and I would just be sitting in the office and listening to them talk about stories from the Great Depression, from World War II, uh, on up to the present day, but mainly about growing up during the Great Depression years. And their sacrifices always amazed me. And then I remember later in life when I would ask my dad something about my grandfather or my great-grandfather, who actually started the business, he would often say, I remember hearing something about that, but I never wrote it down. Hmm. And as a result, after Pa died, and excuse me, but I always called him Pa. After Pa died, I just decided I better start writing some things down or they will be lost forever. And the first story I wrote, which was published in several publications, was The Way It Was, 1933, which was the story of a funeral and the way it was done in 1933. And that story just was the main characters in there were my father and my grandfather, who was Papa. And my grandfather was always one. He died in 1955, and he was always quoted in a newspaper, I think somewhere around that time, shortly before his death, of talking about how people are so much in a hurry today that, you know, there's no reason in the world for people to drive over 25 miles an hour. <laughs> and, you know, I just sit there and he, my grandfather, my father said he wasn't even sure whether we needed to go to a motorized hearse over a horse-drawn hearse because it was so much faster. So he was very much a traditionalist. And I think I wanted to capture that in the story that I wrote, is that you know people from that era doing things slow, being horse-drawn rather than motor-driven, was very important to that particular era. And I think I captured that in that story pretty well. You did. It's a beautiful memoir. And you've also written for American Funeral Director, the Southern Funeral Director, the Director Magazine, and you write a regular column for called Southern Spins in Mortuary yeah. Management. Right. I write that for uh, Mortuary Management, and it's uh, just stories that pop up in my head, usually everyday occurrences that I like to put a different twist on it that hopefully will share some idea to fellow funeral service professionals that we can 
continue to improve ourselves, to continue to look at other ways to do things, and maybe, you know, have a better understanding of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And you've educated many young people coming into the uh, mortuary business as well. Yes. I like uh, meeting with the younger people that are coming in. You know, everybody has a main reason as to why they entered funeral service. And some of them are really admirable. Some of them, well, maybe they need to really get a complete look at it from what their narrow focus is. But I think it's important that when we find that most people who graduate from a mortuary school, after five years, they are not still in funeral service. And I think we need to do something to help these people understand why they're in funeral service, what realism is in the real world, what jobs are available, what skills they need. And I think it's important for the American board of funeral service to come around and look at what skills are needed in today's world and start focusing funeral service in that direction. We need it. We need change. Uh, Beecham, what is the biggest reason, do you believe, that um, people are not in the business after five years, the majority of them? I think a lot of people, well, I'm not saying a lot, but some that I have, they come into funeral service with unrealistic expectations that there are funeral homes just begging for employees. And that may be true, but they're begging for skilled employees. I think some of them believe that, you know, I've got, I know how to embalm somebody and I can do a really good job of it. Well, that's great. But if you go to a small funeral home, you not only need to embalm someone and do a great job of it, but you've got to have good interpersonal skills. That is the ability to sit down to communicate with people, uh, to learn how to paraphrase, to understand what they're sharing with you. Uh, It's not just a matter of getting the basic information for death certificates and obituary. It's for creating a meaningful service. And you can't do that unless you understand who the people are. And I think that is the one area that funeral service education is failing in. They are really not training people for the, what I call social skills that are necessary. And then there's not as much training in the business side. In other words, every business has to have profit loss, have an understanding of how you become profitable and what your prices need to be, what your costs are. And that's not really taught the way it should be. Very skilled people graduated from school with a clear understanding of interpersonal skills and business operations are truly hard to find. That's interesting. Um, so I hope that some of the people listening to this will, will pick up on that and maybe they'll hone their social skills so they'll have more to offer when they do go for an apprenticeship. That would be a wonderful thing, addition to funeral service. I truly, you know, there are times I've needed good help and had to settle for things that were less 
Mm-hmm. And basically, I had to pick up the slack myself. But there's so many times I said, wow, it would be great to have somebody that truly had the skill to go out and then talk with people to get the information the way it needs to be gotten, to deliver a service the way it needs to be done, and also at the same time to understand that, yes, business has got to be business, and you have to look after your balance sheet. And that type of person in funeral service is indeed rare. And, you know, at the same time, particularly in smaller firms like my own, you have to be a jack-of-all-trades. Not only do that, but it also helps to be able to embalm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also helps to, well, in our business right now, we're looking at close to 45% of our business being cremation. So, you know, there's another aspect. Mm-hmm. Okay, with cremation, you know, if you just say immediate cremation, there's not enough money in there to sustain a business. So what you have to do with immediate cremation families is to try to motivate in some way additional services. And I find that if you go out first and offer services beyond what the family is expecting without any additional charge, that they will come back and suggest some other things they might want which you can have an additional charge on. One thing I did find out last year, we went and removed a woman from a single wide trailer in a poor neighborhood, and the family just told us right away, said, we just want her cremated, there will be no service. At the time, there were eight of her children in the house, And I asked if everyone had a chance to see her. And they said, well, we have a brother and sister that are in Virginia that haven't. And I said, well, would it be okay if I do some basic preparation and washing and I'll dress her in something for them to see her before we do the cremation? And family was all for it. And we did that and then let them come and have their time of viewing at which time the ones from Virginia decided, can we have a visitation and a memorial service tomorrow night here at the funeral home? So, you know, reaching out and doing something a little bit extra for the people gave them an idea that, wow, you know, this is really unique and he's helping us and we want a little more than just an immediate cremation. And I'm not saying that's going to happen in every case, but I think it's one thing that we really need to focus on is that trying to enhance our services. Right. Now, Beecham, is that the um, woman that you placed in the bed? Yes. We placed her in our bed. We've created, and I've sent you a picture, a photograph of it, a bedroom which is adjacent to our display room and the idea is really not an original idea. I've seen it when I was in co- mortuary college in Atlanta back in the mid-70s. There were rooms at funeral homes. They did little fold-out beds. They would come in place in a little reposing room and have a body viewed and so forth. And then a friend of mine, Danny Jefferson, 
who run Pierce Jefferson Funeral Home in Kernersville, took the concept a little further and created a really nice bedroom in his funeral home. And he shared that idea with me. And he said, you know, basically it's the difference in an institutional room like a hospital and a bedroom like you have at home. Mm -hmm. And that idea I really liked and I have found the public overwhelmingly acceptable of it. And they really like the idea that they can view in a bedroom that is in more of a home environment than an institutional environment. Right. And I posted the um, photograph on face on Facebook and on Funeral Directors Chat, and it's really beautiful. And I have to applaud you, Beecham, for offering this service and not expecting any compensation in return. It's a it's just a lovely thing. And it's it's so much lovelier when it's an elderly person that has died of a disease or if it's a child um, and they and you don't want the conventional casket, maybe that, you know, just takes away from it. And like you said, if somebody comes in and wants a direct cremation, this is a great alternative. And then you give them a taste of like what a visitation would be like. And um, many times they opt for that. Yeah, we, there's no effort on our part to push anything extra. It's just that let people know, you know, we're truly here to help you. And I think as a result of just that kind of open approach that they are often more apt to say, well, let's do something a little different. Let's add this, let's add that. And when I ask families for um, permission to do limited preparation, what we often will do, and I will explain to them, it's just a basic embalming procedure where we will use just enough fluid to clear up complexion. Mm-hmm. It may be, you know, if you said a normal body would be four gallons of fluid, we might use one, one and a half. We will wash the body. It helps the complexion. And if there's a delay of another day waiting on family, then that helps. But just because it's just a limited situation like that, there's no extra charge for it. It's just a little bit of our time. And we feel that our time is well worthwhile for the client's satisfaction. No, that's very nice of you. Now, you said that uh, cremation is almost up to 50% nationwide and 45% in your area in the South. Right. And I, you know, we put a crematorium in in uh, 1997. I had to wait till after my father passed because he was adamantly opposed to cremation. He was. (laughs) So, uh, in 1997, I installed one, and our cremation was 13% of our services at that time. And as I said, last year it was 43%, and this year it's hitting 45%. So I see it continuing to increase. Uh, I know that in the next few years, it's going to become over 50% here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the main challenge I enjoy is, okay, here's some changes. People values are changing. What can we do to change our services to make them more meaningful? You know, back when I was in mortuary school and afterwards we were taught about casket construction, vault construction, merchandise, and so forth, much more than we were taught about personal 
relationships or personal communications or anything like that. And now, you know, things like that to me are so secondary, they're way down the line, and we need to focus on making personal connections with the people we serve in order to bring a meaningful service to them. Now, Beecham, do you uh, do you usually um, speak to the client families and um, stress the importance of a celebration? I will share that with them in some way where we can come in and say, here's an idea if you want to have a chance. I think it's up to us as funeral service professionals to share all types of options with a family. Um, I know that there was a service we had this past weekend where the person that died was a cousin of mine and his mother is unfortunately has lung cancer and we're having very cold weather and she could not come out and get outside anything of that nature but she's lost her son her youngest son and you know I was there at the house with her and her older son and they were saying, well, what can we do? And I said, why not let's have a memorial service or a service of reflection here in the house. I said, we can't open it to the public because it's not enough room, but just so that your mother can be a part of it, we can get some friends, some business associates and so forth, and they can come in and share um, the person who had died was not a churchgoer, so the first thought wasn't to bring a preacher in to do a service, but to bring friends in who could share some fun stories of times in his life, and his mother could at least hear some people that really appreciated her son for what he was. And that was very important to them. And it worked out very well. There were probably about 40 people that came. And when it was over with, they were blown away, true, literally, because it was just what you wanted. That's beautiful. That really is. Let's talk a little bit about your study groups. Um, I guess a lot of people don't really know what that encompasses and how you started this. Well, back in the early 90s, uh, late Gary Taylor Gary was a uh, owner of Seymour Funeral Home in Goldsboro. He called me and said, um, we're starting a study group and we'd like for you to be a part of it. And I'm sitting there thinking, what is this study group? And he said, well, right now we are a group of 10, nine or 10 independent funeral homeowners and we want to meet and just share ideas. We'll have somebody to come in and give us a program, and then we'll eat together, we'll play golf together, uh, and then we'll have a morning where we can all share ideas with each other, you know, what's working, what's not, pick somebody's mind to get help and so forth. Well, the study group turned out to be absolutely phenomenal. It is one of the better educational uh, sessions that I have ever been to over the years. The only thing that I was really finding a little bit of problem in is that we're a small funeral home doing, 
110 to 125 services a year. And I love it that way. And everybody else in the study group, the Taylor study group, was doing anywhere from 350 up to over 1,500 a year. And the operations of the funeral homes are entirely different. And they had a lot of problems that would never affect me, and I had a lot of problems that would never affect them. So what I did in the process was thinking last year, I said, hmm, I've got some good friends out here that, you know, we do basically the same size business, and maybe they're interested in something like this. And we started off with nine people our first year. Uh, we went to North Myrtle Beach, stayed at the Hilton, and had a dinner together the first night. Then the next morning had a seminar from Frank McNair, who ironically is a childhood friend of mine, but he does a lot of executive training and teamwork exercises and so forth. And Frank talked to us for a morning. And then we took the afternoon off. Then we met again for dinner that night. And everybody seemed, wow, this was fantastic. It was so good. And the next morning when we met, it was roundtable discussion, which here's an idea that somebody's doing, you know, maybe somebody has a great thing they're doing. Like I mentioned Danny Jefferson. Uh, he is one who has a lot of great ideas. And I think we learned a lot from him. There were others in the group that had unique things they were doing, they shared with us, and even some that may have a particular problem. And they said, you know, I've got a problem, and since we're in a small group and I know that nothing's going outside of these doors, I want to ask you all for advice. So they popped a question, and everybody in the group is there to kind of give them support. And then you know that when it's over with, Nobody in the group is going to go out and gossip about what happened. It was so powerful. And we've already had two more funeral directors that have heard about the program that have said, can we be a part of it next year? Well, we will grow to 11, but 2011, and we'll probably meet and decide where do we want to put a cap because I find out if it grows too large, it becomes less personal and you become more threatened. So a steady group, I think ideally 12 to 15 people is a good size. Beyond that, you become more like an open seminar and people might not share as much. True. But I would recommend the concept for anyone. You know, if you just want to enhance your skills there's no better teachers than your fellow colleagues because other funeral directors out there that are facing the same day-to-day problem, probably running into the same problems you are, might have something a little bit different, or they may have something where you've got a problem and they have completely figured out a way to solve it, and they're there to help you. So it's a wonderful concept. No, and the confidentiality um, issue is, is key also. And you can share innovations, as you said. Maybe somebody's doing something um, that's very innovative and they'd like to share it and share their experiences with it. Yes, exactly. There's just 
all wonderful things. You know, just uh, the Christmas ornaments that I have. Uh, they come, they're olive wood grown in the Holy Land. They're carved in Bethlehem. And they're personalized with the person's name on it. Um, you know, there are a lot of film directors that think that's a neat idea. Let me try something like that. Good PR ideas. Or it could be just something like the bedroom we just discussed that Danny Jefferson and I are both using. And the other group, parts of the group, are saying, wow. I think many of them are saying they want to wait and see approach to kind of give us, let us give a report next year on how they're really doing. But truthfully, they're wonderful programs. And I think we're all coming along well with it. They are wonderful programs. And the uh, the uh, candle, it's a candle, the wooden candle that you sent yes, out. Yes, candle, wooden candle. It's very beautiful. And, you know, I think people around the holidays are sad that they lost someone the previous year. And to receive a gift like that is so meaningful. It is. You know, the ornaments that we have, even in our own trip, I said it goes back to my mother's ornament. And she died in 1974. And my father and uh, several others, we even have them on our own tree for our pets, our dogs and our cats that have died. And it's just something that when we go and hang those ornaments on the tree when we're decorating the tree, you know, it's kind of like you place one up there for your father and you pause and you think about it. My wife places one up there for her father and she pauses and thinks about him. And it's just times like that because, you know, Christmas season for most people, it's one of the happiest seasons around. It's one that you create many of your childhood memories on up into adulthood and families are always a part of it. And for that reason, I think that, you know, memorial ornaments can bring out a lot of good memories when properly used. You're absolutely right. It's so beautiful. Uh, let's go back a little bit in history. You, uh, in, back in 1935, Am I correct on that date? Your family had uh, a furniture the, business? The one, the first story I wrote was uh, The Way It Was, 1933. Okay. And um, <clears throat> it was a death, you know, sharing about we're in a rural area and, you know, letting people know, okay, the roads in that time, we do have paved roads, but the rural roads were dirt. Um, back in those times, embalming, was done mostly in the home. Hmm. I still have my great my grandfather's portable embalming table and his instrument that he used to take to the house because he would when someone died, someone would come to the house usually because particularly rural people didn't have telephone. And they'd say, Mr. McDougal, my mama died and my brother died or whatever, we need you out at the house. He would get things, go to the house, and with the person in their bed, he would take them out, place them on the little embalming table, and do the embalming there in the house. Then they would have a casket that they would bring to the house to dress the person and place them in usually the next day. They'd bring folding chairs to the house and... The funeral would be held at the house, 
And the body would never leave the house until it was taken to the cemetery for burial. Wow. And that, you know, a lot of people in today's society could never understand that's the way things were done in that time, but it's true, it was. Um, it was only, according to my father, in the 1940s, truly following World War II, that many services, funeral services, started being held at churches or funeral home chapels. And in my lifetime, you know, I've never embalmed anybody in a house, thank goodness. <laughs> and I have had funerals in the house. As I said, the last memorial service was in the home. But it's something that, you know, if people say, well, why did... How did I get the idea to suggest to a family to have a memorial service in the home? It's just a matter of repeating history. Mm-hmm. It's just like some people think green burials is a new concept. No, green burials is the way it used to be. Right. So, you know, it's just going back in time and some things. History can teach us a lot. I mean, I've always, that's why I say being a student of history my history knowledge come from folklore and folkways and the way people did things. Speaking of folklore, if you don't mind, I think if anybody Googles your name, they're going to come up on the second or third page with the story of spaghetti. Yeah. Okay, spaghetti. Uh, he was a Italian immigrant. His name was Concetto Formica, and he was a worker in a traveling carnival. And in April of 1911, a carnival was set up right across the state line here, seven miles from us, in McCall, South Carolina. And a fight broke out between him and another carnival worker, and the other carnival worker picked up about a three-foot-long tent daub or tent stake. It was wooden, and it had a metal ring on the top of it and hit Concetto over the head with it. Concetto was placed on a wagon and brought the seven miles to Scotland Hospital in Lyneburg, where he later died. And they called my grandfather, John McDougall, to come and embalm him while they contacted his family. And supposedly about a week later, his father came and through an interpreter, you know, basically said, we want you to hold the body till I contact the family in Italy. And about a month later or something like that, I think this, all I remember was in the summer of 1911, a letter arrived from Italy and the family wanted him returned to Italy for burial, and under no circumstances was he to be buried in America in a non-Catholic cemetery. Uh, the problem there is, in the rural South, we didn't have a whole lot of Catholics, and we don't even have a Catholic cemetery anywhere in this area. So <clears throat> my grandfather, through the interpreter, who I was told was a Catholic priest, replied to him, okay, here's what it's going to cost. 
The body had to be put on a train, taken down to Wilmington, put on a ship to go to Italy. And whatever the cost was, well, nothing more was heard from the family. And the body remained at the funeral home unclaimed, and it mummified, meaning all the moisture eventually evaporated away from him. And the locals, I guess you'd say, decided, well, you know, Concetto Formica, that's not an easy Scottish name here. So they named him Spaghetti's since it was a dish, you might say an Italian dish. And he became an object of a lot of folklore here in Lineburg. And then in 1972, uh, election year, there was a former congressman in New York who was running for re-election, and someone had written a newspaper story about Concetto, and the congressman became enraged that we were slandering Italians. Uh, I can tell you from the bottom of my heart that that was never any intention. It was just that, you know, here we had a body and so forth and waiting on the family to return, but, you know, I was one of these people that grew up with a dead man in my garage, and he was part of me. I never thought of him as anything unusual. I mean, that's part of my growing up was having a dead man in my garage. <laughs> see him anytime I wanted. Uh, we didn't think of it any way and unusual. And since Concetto Famica was killed before my father was even born, you know, all he knew was that, yeah, he's always been here. Kind of like a old family heirloom. What do you do with it? Well, got a lot of memories there. But anyway, in 1972, with all the controversy, my dad sought and got a judge's ruling to allow us to bury him. Uh, he wanted to do that just as a safeguard in case anyone in the family ever came up and decided to sue us for going against what the final letters told us not to bury him in a non-Catholic cemetery. And he was buried September 30th, 1972. Uh, we placed him in a solid bronze casket and put him in a porcelain over steel burial vault and then had the grave filled in with concrete. Well, in other words, had a concrete truck back up to the grave and fill in the grave up to about eight inches with concrete. That way we knew that nobody was going to tamper with him later. Right. But it's become quite interesting over the times. I've had um, Steve Hartman and Les Rose from CBS News came down 10 years ago and did a part of his Everybody Has a Story on it. Uh, British Broadcast Company from... London had been here to do a story on it. Uh, WRL-TV from Raleigh has been here to do a story on it, and other news journals have done stories on it. But it's part of Leinberg history, and really no Leinberg history could be written without including him, even though he never lived here. And, you know, people might think we're weird. They've had a dead body in our funeral home for 61 years without burying it. But, again, I go back to say, well, everything we do 
is probably unusual to someone. Right. Depending on the culture that they were raised in. And I just feel that if you, like my father and myself, were raised with a mummified body in your garage, then you don't realize there's anything different about it. I'm glad we don't have him anymore because there were, um, I remember even in high school days, you know, coming out and people would come in and view him and to say, being in a rural area, there wasn't a whole lot to do in our town on Friday and Saturday nights. And we would leave the garage at the funeral home open with the lights on so people could come in and go to the wall that had his case on it and open it and see him. And, um, you know, that was at 9 o'clock, we would cut the lights off and everything and close the door. But one story I'll share with you is that um came home from college one Saturday and was sitting there watching all the people go in, and I decided, I've got an idea. So I took a piece of corrugated cardboard and cut it out the shape of his body and stained it with dark, brown shoe polish, which was about the color of his skin. And I placed it up against the case, the glass case, and put a small piece of string about that long in front of it. And that way it was tied to the head of the cardboard and to the door. So when somebody pulled on it, that cardboard came out at them. Well, I got behind one of the vehicles in the garage to see what was happening. And when the people opened it and it came out, they went across the hood of a station wagon that was sitting there and hot-tailed it as fast as they could run out of the garage. And I was laughing as hard as I could, but then when I got up to the station wagon, I realized my dad's going to kill me for what's been done to the hood of this car. But <laughs> <laughs> things like that, you know, that's part of growing up in a small town. Well, Beecham, wasn't there another story when you first had the intercom put into the funeral home that you broadcast in the garage where the mummy was? Oh, yeah. that uh, Sandy Barrett wrote the story uh, where my dad put an intercom into the garage from the office. And if you got to remember back in the 40s, intercom were not that common, but he did one. And... There were two boys, neighborhood boys, Sandy Barrett and Doug Lassiter. And Doug was the brave one. And my dad dared Doug to sit on the hood of the ambulance for five or ten minutes with the lights out and the door closed with Spaghetti's case open. And Doug said he'd do it. He didn't know about the intercom system. And my dad kept saying, Doug, get me out. <laughs> said, you could hear Doug banging on the backside of the garage door trying to get it open. And then when he got it open, he ran across the road to his house and climbed under the bed. <laughs> and Sandy was in on this thing with my dad and said, you know, Sandy, Mr. Hewitt got you goat again. Don't worry about it. That's very funny. Yeah. So, so, you know, those innocent little things of childhood. Now, you live in a small town. Right now, we're about 16,000 people. Back in uh, around 19, late 40s, and that was going on, there was only about 
7,000. Mm-hmm. And you distinguish yourself in your town because you participate in a lot of activities, especially the Scottish-American activities. Yes. Um, we're in Scotland County because we are descendants of the first Highland Scots settlement in North Carolina. And we have a high school, it's Scotland High School, and the marching band wears tartans, kilts, and so forth. Uh, they're known as the Fighting Scots. We have St. Andrews Presbyterian College. It has a pipe band. We have the Scotland County Highland Games. So we're keeping our Scottish identity alive, even though we're really probably only 25 or less percent of the people in the county today can say they're Scottish descendants. Um, we have a large... Native American, or what is known as Lumbee Indian population in this area. Uh, the Lumbees were descendants of the Croatan Indians, which met Sir Walter Raleigh's colony on Roanoke Island back in 1584. And, you know, just we have a large African American population. So, you know, it's really, we're just a blend of everything, but. Even at the high school, regardless of what race you are or anything like that, we all call ourselves fighting gods. That's great. And you, and everybody knows your family from so far back. Yes, I think they do. Quite a few of them do. <laughs> and it's important, it's important to make yourself known in a town and so, you're, so people can trust you and they know who you are. You're a family man. You've been married since 1980. You adopted four-year-old twins in '87, um, and now you're the. Uh, you've adopted another your granddaughter, Lizzie, in 2006. Lizzie uh, was. We've had Lizzie since she was a year old. Uh, she is our son and a former girlfriend child. Mm-hmm. And my wife is a former primary school teacher, and I think the fact that she has intervened early with Lizzie, that Lizzie is very far advanced in her kindergarten class now. Uh, she loves learning to read and counting and doing math and things of that nature. She always has a curious mind, and I truly have to give my wife credit for working with her and knowing the proper skills to do on her age level. That's so great. She's a blessing to us. She is a blessing. She's a beautiful little girl. Thank you. Now, is there anything that you'd like to um, state in closing? Well, maybe one thing. There are a lot of people who think, want to believe that the best days of funeral service are behind us. Uh, you know, in some ways, the best days of what we know at the traditional funeral may be behind us. But I believe that our better days are ahead. And I think that we need to stop focusing as much on cells of caskets and vaults and start focusing on delivering services. And the reason I feel that is because if you think of the professionals that we really look up to, your physician, your attorney, your accountant, or even your clerk, in either one of those situations, neither one of them sells you a product. They sell you a service. 
And I think funeral service needs to start redefining itself as we are delivering a service or an experience. The reason uh, things like Disney World, Disneyland, Carnival, Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines are so successful is because they deliver not products, but experiences or services. And I think that is something that funeral directors need to learn is that people will pay for wonderful experiences and wonderful services. And I think we need to begin to focus our means and our true delivery of what we want to do in the service area and not as much on the merchandise. There are always going to be people that want the merchandise. There are always going to be people that want a certain type of casket or vault. That's not going away. But more and more people are becoming to the point where they want something that is a service, that is an experience, something that they can feel good about. And I think that service is what we need to do for the future. Thank you for sharing. Thank your, you. Your, thank you for sharing your stories, your experience, um, and your wisdom. And hopefully some young people will listen to this and they'll gain from your wisdom. And if they would like to get in touch with you or anyone would like to get in touch with you, how could they do that? Uh, probably the easiest way is email McDougal, M-C-D-O-U-G-A-L-D at AOL.com. Or, you know, my Facebook page, Beecham McDougal, is open uh, anybody can go on and read some of my stories or some of the tongue-in-cheek posts I may put on that time, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, can contact me through Facebook or the internet would probably be the easiest way. The link on my uh, Facebook page, my notes has got probably, um, I mean, I haven't counted them, how many stories I've got on there. Um, I want to thank uh, Alexandra Mosca, uh, who a year and a half ago asked me, why are you not on Facebook? I said, I don't know anything about it. And then, you know, when I went on Facebook and started putting my stories on there, there's been a lot of public feedback on them. And it, at least I know some people are reading them and some people are getting some great ideas from them. I've read them and they're wonderful. And I just spoke to Alexandra over the weekend and I acknowledge that you, she did propel you to go onto Facebook. But then I said to her, Alexandra, why don't you have notes on Facebook like Beecham does? And she said, you know what? I really should. And I'm going to start doing that. I wish you would. She's a great writer, too. She is. I uh, wish we could get Tom Lint to come on there and do a few things like that. And maybe Melissa Johnson-Williams. You know, I think all of them are real leaders in funeral service. They are. And got a lot to share with everyone else they are thank you so much Beecham for spending the time with me today and happy holidays to your lovely family thank you too Nancy and y'all have a great one yourself thank you United Priority Distributors offers an extensive catalog of unique and exclusive cremation urns, including artistic urns, veterans' memorials, and brass urns that can be engraved and shipped the same day. For more information, visit unitedpriority.com.